For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? As you know, for those of you who are here for the first time, my show is all about celebrating. Celebrating life, celebrating art, celebrating each and every one of us. And I am so excited about today's guest because I have the one and only Hillary Rollins in a beautiful upstate New York sitting outside. I wish that I had the capability of sitting outside right now, which is where I will be after this show is over today, because it is gorgeous here in Rockland County as well. Hillary, I begin every show by asking our guest, who or what are you celebrating today? Wow, that's a lovely question. I am celebrating there's so much to celebrate narrowing it down to one person or thing would is tough so you know on the on the instantaneous level i am celebrating a show that i'm producing um with the very talented john forster at don't tell mama in new york so you know that's my plug <laughs> get that out of the way of course <laughs> of course so it's it what i am celebrating the fact of i'm celebrating the fact of b- doing that show live in person after 3 years in lockdown after a whole you know 10 years of producing live in LA and New York and then having to be nimble as you were skipper and find a skipper Sorry, no, I, lo- I love Skipper. You can call me Skipper. It's such a great name. I, I was like, I just Skipper. <laughs> uh, I have a lot of friends who call me Skipper. So that, I, you know, and I, let's be friends. Call okay. me Skipper. Great. So, yeah. So it's, 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 it, it has a greater meaning. This, this sitting here outdoors in the sunshine and knowing that we can gather in groups inside for live entertainment is huge. So I'm celebrating that today. I was reading an article this morning and it took me right back to lockdown in 2020 uh, when we had to space ourselves walking around in the city. If I didn't even go into Manhattan and I live literally 25 minutes north of Manhattan and I didn't go into Manhattan for two years. Mm. And yet when people were in Manhattan, they were distancing themselves from each other, wearing masks. I mean, that's not how we were meant to live. No, it, it has really taken, well, you know, it, you know, it's an old line, but it bears repeating because it has taken a huge toll and, you know, it's transformative. And, and there's always a silver lining. I see, see the sunbeam coming down on my face. You know, there's, there's a lot of beauty in the transformation into being nimble finding ways to connect and do other things and you know and come out the other side in a different in a different space in a different place because life has changed <laughs> uh, it certainly has well you know I, it, it was a pause for all of us and uh it, to me it was a wake up call uh to me it was a wake up call because i think so many of us uh, there are things that we take for granted. We take for granted that when we, for example, buy our tickets and we show up at Don't Tell Mama uh, and uh, that the show is going to go on, uh, the artists are going to show up, everything's going to go on as planned. And then on March 12th of 2020, everything shut down. 
and uh, and every all of us that are in this business uh, were in limbo. Where were you when everything shut down? Were you here on the East Coast or were you on? I was I was on the West Coast, and it's interesting because um, one of my collaborators, uh, Michelle Browerman, love her. We love Michelle, and Michelle was um, getting a Bistro Award in New York, and she lives on the West Coast as well. And I think the awards might have been the night before. But the close to the night before, very close to it, yeah. And things were brewing before she was leaving, but here's how they were brewing. I was having, I also do a lot of house concerts, and I, I was sort of famous for having these parties with lots of artists, kind of uh, curated open mic. They're the best singer songwriters in the world, and most many of them live or come through LA, and we just have a, a blast at these parties, which was a big part of my life until lockdown. But at that point, I was I was throwing a, a sort of a smaller one of these parties with an artist who I had met recently and some, you know, and we were trying to decide whether or not we should have finger food because there was this thing going around and maybe it'd be better to not have food that people could touch. You know, <laughs> we were so clueless. And Michelle, Michelle got on a plane to New York for the awards. She got her award. It was a wonderful night. And, you know, she almost didn't make it home. We were in lockdown just after that. She said, I dodged a bullet. And I knew a lot of people working in the industry on both coasts who were, you know, I had a friend from overseas. He almost didn't make it home to London. He made you the last flight out. You asked me before we went live uh, how long I've been doing this. Mm. Uh, this started as a result of COVID. Uh, Leslie Ann Warren, uh, who has a friend, she was coming to New York to do Broadway Backwards, which is my favorite night of the year in the theater. Huh. She was coming to New York. I knew that she was doing it. I called her and asked her if she would be my first guest. And she said yes. So, uh, and then after we did the interview, uh, she called me up and said, Richard, have you heard about this thing called COVID? And uh, and I had not heard about it. Yeah, I, I'm being honest. And uh, she said, I'm just hearing about this. I'm afraid to come to New York to do this. And I said, well, if you're afraid, you need to let the producers know. Mm. She called the producers. She told them that she was afraid. And they said, if you're afraid, we understand. And believe it or not, after her call, uh, other calls started coming in. And they made the decision to cancel the show. And then everything shut down. So uh, she it was something that she didn't even have to stress over. Yeah. Because the decision was made for her. Right. Um, but yeah, let, I want to talk about you. Yeah. Um, you, <laughs> That's you, hard for me, but go ahead. Let's do it. You, um, you grew up, uh, you were born into this world. Uh, both of your parents were in the business. Um, when uh, a lot of people are either follow in their parents' footsteps, where they can decide to go in another direction. Uh, you were thrust into it uh, early, early on. Um, what was it about the business, seeing it both from your, uh, both your father and your mother, that wanted you or pulled you in the direction of saying, this is also for me? You know, I'm not sure that I, I that was a conscious decision, really. Um, because it, where I've ended up intersecting in really very much in both their careers, I was a singer very much in the same tradition as my mother. She sang with a 
with a quartet, a vocal quartet. I sang with a vocal trio at the beginning of my career, but an Andrew Sisters harmony kind right. of thing and did a lot of performing and has ended up a songwriter and, and a producer and all that. But then in my father's side as a producer and as a producer, really, you know, I call myself a producer, but in the, the genre that I work in and the way that I've worked, it's been kind of more like a presenter or a manager, sometimes more on the side of just presenter, sometimes a little bit more personal manager, but they're not, I'm not necessarily producing, you know, um, it's just a different genre than if I was producing film or TV or the way. So it's really more than what my father did. His name was on the films as a producer, but what he did is really build an artist's career as a manager. And so I, I kind of have ended up in all of those things, very much the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree, but it didn't start out as a plan, you know, life unfolds. And, um, and that said, I love it. I mean, there was a lot and I love now that that attracted me. Like I loved being around the the people who were funny and I loved being around the talent and I loved the singers. And I had, I was, I was, you know, the Beatles generation um, and all of that, those influences, a singer songwriter. And, you know, I'm, I'm 66 years old. So, you know, you could do the math. But well, my mother, I'm behind you, so yeah. we're uh, we're in the same. Uh, and I love you know reading about you and seeing the Beatles, um, <laughs> <laughs> and your father calling you in to see the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, that that whole story just that is a movie in itself. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And and so, but I was also going and listening to you know Sylvia Sims. She was like my godmother. I mean, I say to people today, Sylvia Sims, most, a lot of young people don't know who she is, but, you know, I was in the cabaret and theater world, and I was always more interested in the theater part of it than my parents were. I mean, I could go to Broadway every night, musical and plays. I'm, I'm, I'm a playwright as well, and I love, like, you know, it was the 70s was great theater, man, you know, <laughs> um, and there's still great theater. So, yeah, so, so you, A, I loved it. B, here's another thing. I also had, par I sort of saw it realistically. You know, I hated that I didn't just get off the bus from Iowa without knowing anything because I thought I would have been a star if I hadn't gotten in my own way, you know, if I had that confidence of not knowing how hard it is. But on the other hand, I've been able to be nimble and survive and find my own path because I knew from the beginning as my father said, it's the only business where you can make a killing, but you can't earn a living. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. And I love that. Yeah. yeah. So you had to know, you know, we're trying to do a, 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 there's been interest in a documentary about my father and, and his role in the business. Tell me that's happening. Well, it is, it's, it's complicated, you know, it's complicated to get financing for film. He's dead several years. Um, he lived to a hundred. And but a lot of the people who would be in the film are also leaving this mortal plane. So we're trying to, we, you know, if we can if we can make it happen, we would like it to happen. And there's been interest and there's been, you know, it's showbiz. We don't want to go into the, the, the weeds, but there have been deals and not deals and life has rolled on. So it's on a burner. Is it on the front burner or the back burner? That remains to be seen. 
you you were in a business, we both are in a business where everyone's trying to put a label on what it is that you do. Mm. And what I love, your your bio is phenomenal <laughs> because you have not, you wear so many hats. Uh, your father, you know, I love the fact you said producer and also a manager. He wore a lot of hats himself. Mm. What are the things that you learned from your father in terms of how he uh, created his own path in this business? Um, I don't think that he was able or they were able to pigeonhole him into a quote unquote niche market. And I feel the same way about you in terms of looking at all that you've done and that you're you are a chameleon in this business. Well, I'm flattered. I mean, you know. I mean, well, let's face it. I mean, when I look at your career, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, everything from uh, the Mickey Mouse Club to erotica. I mean, you know. (laughs) I think you could look at, some people could look at it and think I was just insane. (laughs) So So I look at it and I go, I bow to you. I love it because you've done it all. Well, I, first of all, thank you. Second of all, I think, I would characterize, I mean, it's really lovely to hear it put that way, Richard, because again, and that's the title of your book, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) from Mickey Mouse to erotica. Okay. Yes. But that in your head, uh, Mr. DeSantis. There you go. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was there. I was there. Um, It's, I, I do think there was an eroticism to my trying to do everything because I was afraid I couldn't do anything and needing to prove to myself that I could, you know, I, that if you, you can't hit a moving target. Um, so there was a, there was a neurotic aspect to that. In retrospect, I would like to look at it as, as my friend, John Forster says, as I mean, he didn't coin it, but he's always pointing it out. I'd like to look at it as a, as a feature, not a bug. And when you put it that way, that's that's really recontextualizing it for me today and reframing it, which, by the way, is the gift of being over 65, mm-hmm. because, you know, it's a reckoning, but it's also 2020 clarity and hindsight and everything makes sense. You know, when you get out of judging, this doesn't make sense. And why didn't this happen? And when did this, ha-? you know, when you step back from 30,000 feet and see how things are connecting and and how it all makes sense. It just didn't make sense. You were always walking the path. You just couldn't see the path. You know what I mean? Um, I hate to get woo woo about it. No, I think- uh, get woo woo because I'm a very woo woo person. Okay. Uh, well, you know, but uh, and oh. you know, when I've asked other artists this, do you believe? You know, first of all, in and this is going to get very woo woo. So forgive me. Uh, in manifestation, do you believe that you've manifested everything, or do you believe that everything unfolds as a result of circumstances and the people that you meet along the way? I don't know that I have a clear, um, a clear one belief about that. I, I think that they are, everything is everything, everything everywhere all at once. And I do believe that I manif- that we manifest, you know, I believe that we are social, spiritual, physical beings or, you know, soul embodied and we do shit and <laughs> pardon my language. No, that's what I like. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, it, if we get out of the way of, 
of judging it and self-criticizing and hatred and jealousy and all the, if we let, you know, let the emotions come and go and keep all of that stuff, because I lived it. You know, I feel I didn't manifest success young early on. They used to call me a late bloomer and I hated it. Nobody wants when they're young, oh, you're just a late bloomer. What that says is you're failing. Everybody else is blooming now and you're not. Um, and now I look and I- that. That's interesting. Right? And now I go, okay, maybe they set me on a path. Maybe I was an old, whatever. Whatever was my path, I went, we've all gone down a lot of, and have you met an artist over a certain age who hasn't lived a lot of trauma, pain? That's what we make our, that's the source of why we need to sing. <laughs> well, when you started out with your trio, was that uh, your first uh, foray into the business or were there other aspects of the business that you were doing prior to that? Well, I had started like taking voice lessons and auditioning and thinking I was going to, you know, I dropped out of college for bunches of reasons, one of which was like, I think I want to go take voice lessons and try doing this, being a singer. Um, and it really wasn't my calling. My calling was as a writer. And I knew that since I was a child. And my family knew that since I was a child. And they, they called me like Bloomer. They also said, oh, you're the writer in the family. And I was. I was writing since I was, and I think like a writer. And I think that writers think a particular way. Some people write and some people don't. But I don't think, you know, I don't think everybody who writes identifies as a writer and I don't think everybody who identifies as a writer or thinks like a writer or sees the world through a writer's lens necessarily produces writing. Um, so that's been my experience is that I am a writer kind of the way I am a whatever died in the wall. But I could sing. I had a nice voice and I liked to sing and my mother was a singer and we harmonized and I was, you know, cute enough to do that and I liked to dance and I started. So I did all that stuff. But I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't my greatest talent. It was, a, it was a more minor talent. And it was also not my path. But it was well, my I've, path. I've got, so it took me I've got a lot of questions about this group. Because uh, I know that there was a lot of humor in the group. Mm -hmm. And uh, the patter, did the patter come naturally? Or was yeah. that? Yes, that's what I got really good at. I What I discovered my voice was that I was a really good performer on stage, not because I was a great singer and not because I was born to sing on stage, although I still do it and I do it just fine. People say, you know, it's I, I it's I'm not untalented. I'm just it's not my I don't need to do it. Um, I need to write and I need to be funny and I need to schmooze. And suddenly we were on stage and. We were all funny, but I got, I had the thing with the audience. I had the, I love spontaneous. I could improv with an audience all day. That come, I don't know where that came from. Fear, talent, natural. I used to say my family, you know, it was, you didn't eat if you couldn't, it was survival of the funniest. You know, you was a nightclub singer. Did she have that skill as well? I, she was not that way. It's funny. She, she was a charmer. But she wasn't a, a sticker. Mm -hmm. But she was a storyteller. Oh, my God. My mother never shut up. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we all, I am my mother and my father very, very, very much so in, in retrospect. You know, it's funny, isn't it? You, you run to be your own person and then you are your own person and you are them as well. <laughs> and how did the group come together? And were you the driving force? Behind no. 
No, the group had actually um, existed before me by maybe two weeks okay. <laughs> or a few months. I don't know. It was three three women who had decided to try and do this, three young actresses. And then one of them, it wasn't working out for some reason or she didn't want to do it. I can't remember. And so they, she left and they were looking for third person. I met, so the group was called Hilly, Lily and Lulu. Mm-hmm. And it was myself, Jeannie Kaufman and Marsha Sultan. And Jeannie Kaufman was Lily and Marsha Sultan was Lulu. And Jeannie and Marsha had already started this with this other woman. And I can't remember now who it was, but, um, and they had some arrangements. They were rehearsing. They were playing with the idea. And Jeannie and I met in an audition for Fiddler on the Roof. And we, and we always said we'd be the only two Jews at the audition, <laughs> <laughs> which was true. Always cast some girl from Iowa as Huddle. You yeah, know? it's so funny that you say this because I just, you know, uh, a couple of years ago when the Yiddish uh, Fiddler on the Roof opened, I and I went to the opening night and I said I would love to audition for this, uh, but I don't speak Yiddish and no one in the cast did. No, I know. Amazing <laughs> and amazing how they actually alliteratively learned it. Exactly. Wild. It was wild. Um, yeah. So. So they, she said, we, we hit it off at this audition because, as I said, and um, she asked me if I wanted to meet Marsha and come audition, which was, you know, sing together. And that's how it started. And it was just, you know, at the time it was, you just see it so differently years later, but we started on the streets. We started a cappella on the streets, busking, basically. And we did very well. <laughs> One of the best gigs I ever had because people, we were 23 years old and dressed in 40s costumes in 1977 and singing Andrew's Sister's Close Harmony. It was, nobody was doing that. I mean, people were doing that. A few people were doing that, but mm-hmm. on stage, but we were not the usual street corner event. And we also discovered it. Uh, we, we went, we were in the village, but we found a spot in Soho when Soho was just beginning to get really tony. So people gave you dollar bills. Like in the village, they gave you quarters, nickels, dimes, and quarters. In Soho, they threw dollar bills in that. Wow. wow. This is in 1977. That was a lot of money an afternoon, a Saturday afternoon in Soho. We did very nicely. So, and when did the nightclub work start to happen as a result of that? It's a funny story. I'll get to tell you exactly who it was. We opened, we went indoors off the streets into the nightclub first time as the opening act for none other than the silver Fox herself, Jamie DeRoy. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That is a little known fact. Yep. And the reason, and I'm even better. I think the reason Jamie found us was that Joy Behar had seen us on the streets and somehow we were at an open mic or something and joy was just starting out you know we were all just she was a little older and but we were we all knew each other because we were all doing the same thing in the same place as as you do and um somehow joy rec i think recommended us and here was the problem we said sure we'd love to do your opening act we don't have charts we sing a cappella, and she said well, you better go get some charts, girlfriends. So we had to find a musical director. And I don't know if you ever came across a woman pianist um, MD in New York back in the day named Jan Rosenthal. 
Oh my God. Yes. 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 Now I'm going to cry. Jan was our musical director. Wow. Jan is, I haven't grieved yet that part of my life. I need to, because Jan was a very important part of my life and a brilliant musical director for us. Wow. Arranger. Oh, she God. didn't do our first bunches of, of arrangements because we had a few, someone had done. We brought them to her and then she, we needed more material and she started writing she never really got full credit for how good a vocal arranger she was. And she was, she, she toured with us and she played for us. I mean, we had other pianists when we had a sub, but she was our gal. Anyway, you started getting right. Uh, you started getting seen. I mean, you got reviews in the New York times. Yeah. So and then we started, so then we had an act. <laughs> then we'd gone indoors and we had charts for six songs or eight songs or whatever an opener was. So then we needed to, then people were like, well, let's, do you want to be the headliner? Um, okay. <laughs> so we started, we started, now none of us were writing songs at the time. So we were doing either fat material that we were doing arrangements of, and we had a few people. There's a wonderful writer named Mark Saltzman, who has gone on to win, yes. you know, yes. he's won a lot of, Gavin. yeah. And he, um, he, we did, he was a young songwriter at the time and we did three or four of his songs which he arranged for us. He wrote a couple songs for us. David Evans was my boyfriend back in the day. Um, you know, he was writing Partners with Lenny Holtzman. Uh, he wrote, they wrote a tune for us um, that went on to be, without us, went on to be in um, the off-Broadway show, uh, A My Name is Alice. Mm. Uh, so there were all of these, you know, everybody was building their, their careers then. Um, and we did this for 10 years and we did end up having a career with it. Like all groups and all cabaret, you know, life, it was hard to sustain past 10 years. I was going to ask who was the, uh, was there one specific person or uh, event that caused the breakup of the group? And, uh, and were you thinking about what was next as this was happening? You know, I don't think that, um, boy, that would be a different story from each of us. And I, I'm loath to go, <laughs> um, you know, it was not my calling and it was not ultimately, it was, a, there, it was a really fun in a lot of ways and really had its, you know, it was uh, it's invaluable experience, but we couldn't earn a living. We weren't, um, we were young women looking for fertility mates of one sort or another. Like life was happening. Mm -hmm. you know, I was the youngest. I was 23 um, when we started and the others two were, I think, 26 and 29 or something like that. So we were already, and she was already a little closer to the anxiety of, reproduction and all of that stuff that comes with with life and being female so you know we were it, so much was going on in life and we our careers were not taking off we were in the household name you know if we had been the pointer sisters if we had been i mean other people who were doing girl groups were having record careers we were singing 1940s stuff we were funny we were charming we were i think we were probably really a lot of fun and we had our fans but we didn't have the chops of some of the more of some of the groups like Manhattan Transfer 
and we didn't have the, you know, we didn't have an instrumentalist among us who could do arrangements. We just didn't have the whole package it took to be musical, to make that our career. Fully. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jeannie never, we initially, I mean, I did a little bit of theater throughout that time and Jeannie did a lot of theater. That was really, she wanted to be in theater. So this was really, you know, or, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and uh, was this essentially a sideline for all of you? It was a side hustle by default. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it was, it was a, while we're auditioning, let's try to do this thing to have something to do and, and, and see what we can do. And then it started to give, um, give us more opportunities than auditioning did for the most part. So that's the that's the role of the singer actor, you know, chorus person, right? You go where the work is, you figure it out, you build. I mean, most of cabaret is people singing Broadway who wanted to sing Broadway but have realized that they can have more control over their career. Not waiting all this time. I mean, but were you doing? Uh, were you writing as well? Doing so writing. So no. So one of the things was that I was not writing, and I was, I was. I I was not comfortable. I was not a happy camper, and I was probably a evil bitch to work with. I don't think I was a bitch, but we had our issues as a, as you know, best friends, best frenemies mm-hmm. as a group. Um, and I know, in retrospect, that my issue was that I was just not doing what I wanted to be doing, and I wasn't really being authentic. And I was not feeling as, and I was feeling marginalized by the fact that, you know, I wasn't doing, I wasn't shining the way I knew I wanted to shine as a creative person, but I didn't know what to do about it, you know, really. And I knew deep down it was, you're a writer, you need to be writing, but I, you know, I I was a late bloomer, (laughs) I had a lot of resistances. And I was living, you know, part of it I think was growing up with, my father's clientele were essentially writers. They were comedians, but really what, he was looking for in a comedian wasn't somebody who could do do the performance part. It was the content. And he was, these were geniuses, you know, Woody Allen and, Mm -hmm. you know, these are writers. Um, And a comedy at its best is, you know, it's all fueled by the writer and anything, a a play, a, a song, you know, there's nothing better than a great singer singing your song, but without your song, they got nothing to sing. So, it's that's the sort of heart of it for me. Um, it's a communication, and I wasn't I wasn't comfortable in my own skin in that role enough to make that work. And finally, for me, writing it became a clear choice between it, it hurt more not to write. See, I resisted writing because it was what I wanted to be doing and needed to be doing, but I was neurotic about it. Inner critic. I'll never, whatever. I had all kinds of resistances and it was very painful and it became more painful not to do it. And I do very much believe that a lot, and I don't mean this in a negative way. I think that's a really positive spiritual truth that Mm -hmm. life is a choice between what hurts and what hurts worse. And when you choose, you know, when you, when I finally said it's going to hurt more not to write than to just say I'm a writer and start doing it, even if I fail or even if I, all the worst, whatever it's going to be, I have, I can't not do it anymore. So I started doing it. And that was around, I was around 27, which is late for a writer. 
27, 28, because most people in the writing world, you know, they're born writers. They've always, you know, and there's a lot of bullshit in our culture too. You know, you don't have your first novel out by 19, you're nothing. That's right, that's right. But, uh, you know, and it's also a very, um, you know, a private, personal thing when you're writing. Um, when did you feel comfortable uh, sharing your writing with others? And- well, yeah, yeah, it was painful. It was scary and hard. And um, that's just developing a thick skin, though. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's true whether you're, you know, I have a 23-year-old daughter now, and she is also a budding writer, and she's also struggling with whether she is or not and whether how to how to manage that. She mostly is interested in being a lyricist and songwriter as, but she also has written essays and, and she's not working as a writer. She's working in the industry in, in a management firm. She has not fallen far from her grandfather's tree. Uh, that. <laughs> and the reason I bring it up is she, she probably won't, you know, do that forever, but it's a, she's learning the ropes of this and that along the path. And it's just as scary to be um, doing anything at the beginning and share it, you know, expose yourself. Writing is that much more exposing in a way. But whatever you do, you have to, you have to live through the pain of the inner critic, the outer critic, the, the risk taking or, or put it in a drawer and no one sees it. And that's fine too. But you don't get a thick skin without walking through the fire. You walk through the fire. Be a fire walker on a daily basis. Yeah. I have a, a two part question for you. It's actually a three part question, but uh, what was the best piece of advice that you received from your father? <laughs> uh, this business, I want to say, in this business, I used to have a bit about it, sort of, because I always said there are two things my father said to me my whole life, you know, and they weren't necessarily about this business, but one was always, um, but in a way, they are one was keep your eye on the ball which he literally said when he tried to teach me to catch and I never could. <laughs> it's never going to happen. He never had a son. I could never catch a ball. And uh, the other thing he said was never kid a kidder. Well, some sons can't catch a ball either just to let you know. I know. <laughs> he was fine with it in the, but it was, it was like, um, you know, it was, uh, and also n- never marry a man without a sense of humor which I never married a man. So, <laughs> so I got, I got a pass on that one, but. Okay. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and from your mom, what was. Um, mom, you know, God bless my mother. My mother was really a beautiful soul and she did not, she loved very unconditionally. She just, believed that um you know it's show business go into it if you want we can't tell you not to you wouldn't it, it, she said they both said how could we tell you we we knew that it was a terrible business to go into on one level but the reason people don't want and and we would struggle with that because we all ended up in it in some degree or another because we were all in the arts and artistic all three daughters and she would say it is a terrible business. And, and yes, you know, don't be an actor unless you can't do anything else. And all the things you hear, all the scare ta- tactics that people tell people who are driven to be creative. 
Um, and, but my parents, we, even though there was a lot of expectation being in the business and I was, it was hard for me, hard for all of us because we grew up with these geniuses comparing ourselves to the creme de la creme of people who had already had shining stars in the firmament. How do you start out and make your mistakes? And I never did stand up because how could Jack Rollins' daughter do stand up without being, I, I couldn't imagine. I, I, I found another way to be funny mm-hmm. so that I wouldn't have to be judged in, in that arena, right? So it was sort of like it was like being Sinatra's daughter, you know. It's not it's not great to be exactly what your famous parents do, and um, or being one or the other, or that, being right, right, yes. right. And, but my mother and father both said, uh, "We did it. We went into it knowing we shouldn't. How can we tell you not to? You got to do what you got to do. You do what you want to do. You follow your heart." And they were very supportive. And well, frankly, supported financially too. You know, they were like, "Okay, we can't open doors for you, but you have to walk through." And they didn't really open doors; they did what they did, but they they didn't penalize us. They helped us along our path. Which was there's nice. a reason for the next questions that I'm going to ask. What was the most difficult thing that you saw your father go through in this business, and how uh, did you get through it? Jeez, you know, my father has, there's a very famous, famous, famous story that people don't know about today because it was so long ago. I didn't see him go through it. I was maybe three years old, but I grew up with it it, very embedded. And it's very much a part of his story because he was, um, he was Harry Belafonte's manager and they, he really, they created each other. My father wasn't a manager. Harry wasn't what he ended up being. He was a singer, but he had sort of dropped out and he wasn't doing, he wasn't doing, he wasn't the Harry Belafonte we know today. Mm-hmm. He wasn't doing the island thing at all. And they were very young and they knew each other from the village and that crowd, the upstairs and the downstairs and the Dwayne and the, I mean, these are names you won't know, but maybe you will. These were really old New York nightclub um, cabaret venues where people were paid to sing and paid to do comedy as a, as a live, you know, weekly in-house act. I mean, you could earn a living doing it then uh, in, in the supper clubs. And that's really what I long for. <laughs> oh, you and me both. Oh yeah. Yeah. That is so we, but anyway, um, without getting too far into the weeds, I would say that my, my, the rise of their careers together and then Harry broke his heart, literally broke his heart. And now Harry's got another version of the story and he's written his book about it. And he's a great hero to many people. And I have no, I'm not no ax to grind, but the karmic connection between these two, including right up here where I'm sitting in, which is with my parents' summer house, 50 years later, he bought a house up here. Belafonte did. I mean, it was like a weird they, they, their paths crossed. I went to school with his daughters. There were so many ways that from the beginning to the end, they were connected, but that it had gone from being like a brother, father, uncle, friend. It was like the son. It, they were, they, it was that early management thing. And then they went through something that broke his heart. And I don't think he was ever the same. So that was the hardest thing. When you're a personal manager and working with cl- clients and talent, 
and you're involved, you're involved emotionally. You and and you can tell yourself that it's a business, and it is. In you know, there's a, but it is not. Um, you know, it's also an art and an art form where there's love and there's heartbreak and there's relationship and and connection and broken connection. That was the hardest thing. And I, uh, yeah. And the same question for your mom, the most difficult thing that she went through in this business and how she got through it. Well, you know, she left the business to have kids and be very, she was very much a supporter and, and, and claimed she wanted it that way, you know. Um, her three daughters, we, we, we did a lot of arguing about that through our, you know, get mom into a, a feminist consciousness raising <laughs> mode here. But my mom was, she was an artist in her own way. She was a, she was totally, she was living her life the way she wanted to live it. Um, as within her vision of it. So she didn't, she, but she also, she just left singing because like she got married and had children. And mm-hmm. she said, I was never going to, you know, she said I was too short for the costumes. <laughs> you know, she, she, she was, which was true. She would, those were the days when they had singing choruses and, um, and dancing choruses and you didn't have to be tall and you didn't have to dance and you had large numbers of voices on stage. So you had to be, but you had to be tall enough for the costume for the singing chorus. And she was always too short for the costume. Then there was, she was a good enough singer, but the girl next to her was a good enough singer and fit the costume, you know? And she just, so she did do some cool stuff. She was on your, um, your, uh, your hit parade on TV as, as one of the regulars, you know, she did TV, she toured. That was not an easy gig. That was not an easy gig. Right. Yeah. So she did her shit. And then she was like, you know, she, she, she did, but she was very involved in my father's career and in building, she was very much the woman behind the man. And the hardest thing I think for her was dealing with his, he was very much a depressive, you know, he's very successful, but he shouldn't have been on from any other, in any other business where, you know, he had to get up at four in the afternoon and stay up till four in the morning. Cause that's, cause he was in a depression and that's how his mind worked, you know? And, and, a, so, and a nightclub world also. And a nightclub world. And it worked for him. It worked for him, you know, and he wasn't a drinker. You know, he was a guy who drank coffee all night at the club watching the comics and then said, coffee doesn't affect me. <laughs> sleep. Um, have you ever dealt in this business with the imposter syndrome? Uh, every minute of every day. Mm. <laughs> and how? Uh, I'm, I'm having it right now. <laughs> Not with me. No, oh, I yeah, am. I and you know what? So Everyone is. That's the beautiful part. That's, when yeah. you finally, my daughter has it. Everybody has it. The only relief I have now is being old enough and having done enough therapy, spiritual work, whatever it is, what one does in life to go. Oh. That's why it's imposter syndrome. You've done everything you've done and everybody has done everything they've done. And none of it really is what they think it is or isn't. But we're all walking around in fear that we're not who we say we are. We're not okay. We're not good enough. We're- and I'll tell you something. I've done 700 of these interviews and everyone's going through it. 
everyone's going through it. Um, but uh, tell us about your upcoming show that you're producing, yeah. Mama. And then uh, I'm going to have a little fun with you. I hope it's fun for you. Uh, I've got some uh, random questions about the creative process uh, based on my own readings and writings myself. Wow. Uh, so tell us about your upcoming show. So um, John Forster is a is what known as the songwriter songwriter um, because he's a genius. Um, and he's had a wonderful, wonderful career, but he's he's not necessarily a household name. And that's part of the function of being a songwriter first and a performer second, although he's done a lot of performing. But it's been a long time since he has. And um, he is ready to sort of come back in in this emeritus portion of his career and get back on stage again. And he's as good as ever. He's sort of known among people who know him as the Tom Lira of today. And, you know, there's a whole world of Tom Lira fans. Tom Lira is still around. He's in his 90s. But um, John is in that ilk. He's a satirist. He's a humorist. And is he's he also... anywhere else these days? Or is this uh, really so, well, a big comeback for him? Well, it's a big comeback that he, he'd been doing lots of other stuff. And we were working on a project and a co-write and co-producing project, a songwriter's project. And up here, up in this um, area where I am in Hudson Valley, there's a venue called uh, Spencer Town Academy. And they do series. It's an arts venue, a community-run kind of non-for-profit. And I pitched them the idea of bringing John and Christine Lavin, um, who's, you know, you know Christine, she's a great... And we did a co-bill with them and it was sold out and they were brilliant and it was beautiful. And John said, you know, I really do want to get back to doing this and I want to do, I want to perform again and I want to tour. And he's, you know, we're all the age we are, but he's in better shape than most people I know. He'll go a lot longer than most of us. And he's a brilliant pianist and he knows everyone, but he's very shy. You know, he's funny. He's not somebody who blows his own horn. So he, he wasn't going out and doing it. He, he was doing it as a songwriter and living his life. And he sort of wanted to get back to it. But I, he, I said, John, would you do the show? And then when he did, he said, would you consider, you know, helping me get back to building a show we can, we can tour? And I said, for anybody else, no. But for you, yes. No, <laughs> I, I, I do do it. But I do it, you know, for the people I want to do it for, which, and he's one of them. And when so, will he be there? He will be there. Uh, so he opened on the 16th of April. That was a Sunday night. Okay. And the next two are Monday nights. So it'll be a, uh, Monday, April 24th, and uh, Monday, May 1st. I'll make sure that all the information's on my YouTube Great. channel so that we'll get yeah. to know yeah. about that as well. Yeah. And it's 7 o'clock at, at Don't Tell Mama. And um, it's a, such a fun night and, and really... I guarantee laughs and a lot of love. I'll try to get there. Uh, that's fine. So I'm going to have a little fun. I hope uh, I've got three mystery questions. So pick a number one through three. <laughs> okay. Three is my favorite number. Okay, great. And it is um, get, uh, I love this. Get something off your chest in a loving way. Mm. Now. Do it. Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh. I think I, I think I've been doing that the whole interview because. <laughs> <laughs> well, if 
you have. You've been doing it in a loving way. Thank you. I mean, I think, you know, it's, um, I guess what I want to get off my chest in a loving way, you've already touched on in a very loving way, which is that I do have imposter syndrome because I'm not a big star in one field. Um, I'm a, I'm a, a jack of all trades, you know, and I, my fear is master of none. And my, and I struggle with the self-esteem, the low self-esteem of not um, being able to, I guess what I thought would be like, be something that I knew I was and, and everybody else knew I was that. And it's all I did. And it's like clear and it's not, Hillary, you're singing, you're singing my song. So call me once a week and we'll... Uh, okay, we'll right. So that's... The, so I, I think for getting it off in a loving way is to say, you know, that owning it, that that's my neurosis and my experience. But sharing it with you, having the opportunity to share it with you. No, no. I, I know exactly what you... Um, uh, I, I'm exactly there. So um, so this next question, and, I, and we touched upon this with your dad and, you know, without mentioning any names, mm-hmm. uh, it says, have you ever had to deal with someone bad in this industry? Uh, and I'm sure you have. <laughs> and if so, how did you deal with it? And how did you get past it? Bad. Um, there's so many uh, versions of that. So um, someone who, um, well, let, let's put it this way, because there are very many versions, someone who tried to stand in your way with something creative? Um, I I don't really, I don't have a story that comes to mind where I would say that. I would say that, um, but I will tell you this story. I did go on a date with, um, with uh, Bill Cosby when I was 18 and he was 40 something and married. And I, I went out to dinner with him, um, which, and I, that's all that happened. I, I got out of there when I figured out this is weird. Um, you know, he, but it comes, it, I go like I, sliding doors. I could easily have, um, it could have been really bad. And maybe I was protected by the fact that he knew my parents. I, you know, he, I met him with my parents actually. And he was a casual sort of, oh, well, you know, I like to help young actresses. Um, why don't we have dinner? And I was like, well, that's weird, but okay. How am I not going to go? Like, this is an exciting adventure. Mm-hmm. Bill Cosby wants to take me. I'm like maybe 19, you know? And I called my mom. I said, I know he's married. She said, we were his wedding. I'm like, he wants to talk to you about show business. And I don't know, I'm not going to do anything, but meet him in a restaurant. And she said, you got to live your life, you know, just keep your eyes open. And I did. And it was a bizarre experience, but it wasn't, I didn't feel in danger, but I had the instinct to go. It was so bizarre. He was, he so didn't pay any attention to me the whole time, like at all. And then wanted to like, just keep, you know, like, when I said I wanted to go, he wanted to get me a cab. And I said, no, I'll get my own cab. I'm fine. You know, it was a very bizarre experience. But when, of course, all the scandal broke, I thought, you know, there's been that kind of bad happening every day. And that would have been the worst for me if it had turned out to be bad. So I've never had anything at that level. 
But as a woman in this business and as a young woman in this business, I never also I never didn't have that. Like every woman had a version of that. It may not have been terrible. It may not have been a rape or a crossing a line, but you know how we dealt with somebody who people would would have expectations about. We would just we just fielded it like, oh, you know, don't play with that person because that they've got an agenda or whatever. And I think I dealt with it by having being a tough New York broad with a strong force field. <laughs> so in that, but I, there are just so many people in this business, you know, it's, it's just the power grab of yeah. feeling that you've got that power over another person. Over another person. Right. Wow. You know, it's, it's weird. And that's of course only we're talking sexual assault. I'm not trying to get heavy. Like there's other kinds of bad. I just thought it was a weird when that happened. It was friends who knew that much later said to me, why don't you, tell your story. And I said, you know, I have no story to tell. I don't, I believe this is all, this all happened. I believe all these women, I just, it didn't happen to me. So I am not going to, that's the whole story, but yeah. Um, it's a business full of nut jobs and creatives and wonderful, wonderful people too. That's true. Yeah. Wow. Um, Wow. What, what a great, oh, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, on the other side of this, <laughs> this, is a, this is an interesting question. I'm sure that isn't where you planned for this to go. No, 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 I, no, I, I, I appreciate your honesty in going there. Um, do you find, uh, this is an interesting question I'm about to ask you. Do you find that you have uh, ever judged other people in this business? Oh, terribly. I mean. The spiritual path, man, it's kicking my ass now because, you know, that is really the truth. If you're pointing a finger, there are three more pointing back. Right. right? Um, I'm not afraid to say that I'm a proud member of Al-Anon. I believe in, you know, the truth of the 12 step, you know, the brilliance of, of the spiritual truth, the capital T truth. And, it's a business of judgment and we judge ourselves. That's all the, all that horrible, you know, the creative process has its own engine and then there's, you know, the critic and the judge and it's a constant war between those demons and you have to find ways to manage it if you're going to survive it. But um, what the first thing you notice eventually is, Oh, this isn't working for me. I'm not happy. I'm not getting where I want to be. And then you start to notice that you're judging everyone else and everybody else really harshly. And then you start looking at what's inside your hula hoop and go, you know, that's a bitter pill. You walk around with a bitter, you've got poison. This one is this, this one is that one, that one. And that is not attracting, that is not how to win friends and, 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 and make, you know, spread love or creativity. So I judge people all the time. I catch myself. I try to look at what, what that's about in me. Judy Garland once said that she found that every time she was looking through the peephole at someone else, someone was looking back at her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and we are sacred mirrors. We're sacred mirrors for each other, you know? No. Somebody loves my work and I think I'm a, uh, I haven't done anything. And you tell me I'm a, you know, well-rounded creative blah. 
somebody else has never heard of me and I think I'm, you know, it's like, who do you find to reflect what you're looking to feel? Or- well, yeah, it's interesting that you say this. Uh, you know, I, I lead a book group on, and on Mondays, we, and the book that we're reading right now is The Four Agreements. Have you ever uh, read The Four Agreements? I haven't, but I'm really getting into Ramdas now. <laughs> well, The Four Agreements, and one of The Four Agreements is that it's never about you. Right. And, uh, and one of the people in the group mentioned that in a, a, a group that she's in, uh, they were talking about another artist uh, recently, and she just recently got a, a, a rave review. Mm-hmm. And she leads the group, uh, had her read the review in front of the class. And I said, would she have read the review if it was a negative review? Mm-hmm. Because do and it's interesting because are we believing that person because they raved about us would we have put the same faith in that person if they had given us a negative review and it's the same thing when someone gives us a negative review we will obsess over that you know why did they say this why did they say this why did they say this and we never and you know this to be true we never put the same energy into the same rave review that we get not only that but if you actually look in the field of psychology because this is a whole other thing that i'm into now which is mind body healing stuff because i had a lot of pain issues and and i i I did not want to go down the path my mother went down which was replacing she replaced two hips two knees and a shoulder um and i I replaced one hip and did not have the result I was hoping for. And I was like, I'm done. (laughs) So, um, and there's a whole new thing, uh, uh, not new, but a whole area of mind body medicine that in any event, without taking this off of show business, I just want to say that in the psychology world and, and, and the sort of research science, brain science world, you know, they call that negative bias that's human. We're wired for negative bias. It's a, it's actually, we're wired for it. We can't help it. It's what has allowed us to be a species that has survived the world that we've created for all these years. And so, yeah. And once you know that, there's so much freedom in going, I'm going to do that. I'm going to have that reaction. You know, I'm going to go, why did they say that? Why did they say that? But then I can step back and remember it's just a voice in my head that's going to find the negative bias. I'm always going to not hear the positive, and it's not. None of it is the truth. Let go. Let go. Let go. Let go. Let it go. Let go. Let God. My dear friend Kasira McKee, she has a book called "Let That Go." Yeah, it's a book. It's a great book. Um, this hour has flown. Uh, the hour's gone. Uh, you are welcome here anytime. Thank you. Richard. Um, I'm going to start. I'm going to end where we started. And uh, who or what are you celebrating today? I want to celebrate Ralph Lampkin Jr. because he was the one who facilitated this today. Absolutely. So, Ralph, thank you, thank you, thank you. I Ralph- celebrate. Let's just say, I, for those, because maybe there are people who don't know, is is a publicist in this business, and he has been a dear, wonderful friend, done an incredible job for me and all the people he's worked with, with me and not with me. And so... Uh, 
he walks the walk and he talks the talk and he's one of the best in the business. So Ralph, uh, I celebrate you today and I thank you. Don't go anywhere for a moment, Hillary, because I'm okay. going to give you the final word today. It could be about anything that we spoke about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. You've got the final word in a moment. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being here today. Uh, you could have been anywhere. Um, I, I don't want to go down uh, a negative note, but I do want to acknowledge um, four things that have happened um, in the news lately. Uh, there was yet another senseless shooting uh, today in Charlotte, North Carolina. This time, um, a little girl was playing basketball. I don't know if you've heard this yet. No. And, uh, the basketball landed in the neighbor's yard. And the man shot her father. And, uh, you know, and I am thinking about the fact that we have lost a sense of empathy with each other when people are, you know, using uh, guns as a point of resolution instead of getting to talk to each other and getting to know our neighbors. Uh, you know, uh, just this week, you know, uh, a young boy ringing the wrong doorbell. There was a an incident, I talked about this a couple of days ago, uh, years ago, where I accidentally got in the backseat of someone's car thinking that I was in my own car. Uh, just think of the circumstances had been, you know, what happened in Texas. A young girl who lost her life pulling into the wrong driveway. We've got to stop. We've got to start showing love for each other. Um, yeah, we just got to get back to this. And um, and don't think of these as just uh, mindless news items. People hear it on the news, and then they go to the refrigerator and make themselves a ham sandwich. You've got to pay attention to what's going on, and uh, because this affects each and every one of us. Uh, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Please, please, please. Pick up the phone today. Hillary, I want you to do the same thing. Pick up the phone and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a long time and let that person know that they matter in your mm -hmm. life. It's important that we all do this. Um, not an email, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call and let that person know. Better yet, make a plan to go out to dinner with mm -hmm. that person if you can do so. Um, I have a dear friend, he says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. Mm -hmm. I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that oh. note, Hillary, I'm going to leave the screen and I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, I want you back anytime. And let's do dinner sometime. I think we have Absolutely. a great Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, have, have song will travel. <laughs> yes, we'll do that. Thank you so much. And Ralph, thank you. Hillary, it's all yours. I'm turning it over to you. Thank you. Wow, it's really, that's a big, heavy responsibility. I have not a lot more to say, except that this has been an incredible treat. Um, and and what a journey this has been, being part of all of this. Uh, and I did not know about that last shooting because, you know, I literally got up, had coffee, and, and got on this call. Um, And I'm sort of beyond words right now, but 
I did write a song with Michelle Browman called While There Is Still Time. And um, it was written at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and it basically just is a reminder that we need to be kind to each other while there's still time. So um, I encourage you to find the song. <laughs> Not for me, but from my heart. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.